If there were a Paleontology Hall of Fame, one name to be enshrined forever would be Dino Don Lessum. This journalist turned paleontologist has spent decades educating the public on these incredible creatures with his unique brand of humor and charm. A friendship with author Michael Crichton helped Don bring his talents to Isla Nublar as a scientific advisor for Jurassic Park. Ever since, Dino Don has created wonder over 50 books, toy lines, and TV specials. Now he joins me for a look behind the scenes and forward to the future. I'm Jimmy, and welcome to Dinosaurs Will Always Be Awesome. So when I start these conversations, I lead off with one question, and I have to ask, and I'm dying to hear your answer. Dino Don Lessum, what's your favorite dinosaur? I have no choice but to say Lessumsaurus. I there mean, you go. <laughs> there's only one dinosaur with my name. Truth be told, it's kind of a dopey dinosaur with a huge belly. And there are a million prosauropods that look exactly the same as that, except if you went to look at their vertebrae. So my real favorite is Troodon. Uh, I like the idea of a really smart dinosaur, smarter than mammals of its time. I'm kind of fond of him. Well, it's been through a lot, that animal. Yeah. You know, it used to be about eight different guys based on the thought that the teeth didn't go together until they actually found a jaw and Phil Curry lost the jaw. You know that story? Uh, I'm about to. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you because it's a cool story. Yeah. First of all, my house is named Troodon Manor. I have a stained glass window of a Troodon in the doorway. So I have my nerdiness. The, uh, the story was that when they built the Terrell Museum, which is right in the Badlands of Alberta, full of dinosaurs, uh, Phil Curry was out with Jack Horner who'd come to visit from Montana, and Jack, being so good at finding fossils, is walking around with him and says, what's this thing here? They pick it up, it's a jawbone. It's got all these different teeth in it, and this is a troodon, meaning that they can amalgamate all these different dinosaurs in one. However, uh, they didn't pick it up, you've got to dig it out, and it was raining like crazy, so it was the end of the day, so they just said, well, we'll come back tomorrow. It rained and poured for like days. Horner went home. Curry came back. He couldn't find it. Couldn't find the oh, jaw. No. And then he gave up after a while. And then Horner came back to visit two years later. They go for a walk. And Horner says, there's the jaw. So he found it all up again. Made Should have dropped the pin. <laughs> you know what? I think he planted it when nobody was looking. That's it. That sounds, that's, that's the Jack Horner I know. That sounds exactly like, hey, oh, hold on. I'll be right back. I'm just... Hey, look what you found. <laughs> when was this? How long uh, ago? A long time ago. This is uh, probably 86, 87. That museum opened, I think, sometime around there. That's okay. a phenomenal story, though. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, they are both great fossil finders. And mm -hmm. Although Curry, I think, found a... He told me once he found a T-Rex head because his camera case fell on it. He, he was going down the side of some Badland cliff. He dropped the case came to arrest and he was on the it was on the top of the skull. So you've been involved then in lots of different digs and a lot of different uh, animal discoveries. And so you you've been when did you get your start in paleontology? Uh, it's really backwards because I had a first start like every kid when I was five. I would go every week to the dinosaur hall at the Museum of Natural History in New York, and I would give tours, even though nobody asked me. Got back into it because I was a newspaper reporter 
to undergraduate school in primatology, didn't want to do the hard work of the research, so became a reporter about endangered things. The newspaper in Boston sent me to go on a dinosaur dig. So when, when Boston sent you on the dig, where did you go? So they said, there are these two guys that seem to be in the, uh, in the papers all the time. They seem like real characters, Horner and Bakker. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, if, if you say so. And so I went out and followed them around. I went, went to Utah with Bakker, and then I went to Montana with Horner. And what I discovered was that I was as interested in these characters and the process of excavation and their imagining of a world that once was. So I had a fellowship for a year at MIT for mid-career journalists. So I could do anything I wanted. So I thought, mm -hmm. and I'll just go to every dig in the world and write a book about it. It turned out to be 900 pages and nobody wanted to read it. So the, editor, <laughs> the editor cut out two thirds of the book. It might be a record for the most pages cut. And uh, then it got published and about eight people read it. So I realized that uh, maybe the audience is kids. I also met some people during that fellowship who worked at the Nova television series in, the, mm -hmm. in Boston. So I worked on some documentaries and hosted one. And basically I have an ADD personality. So every few years, I got to do something else or I get too antsy. Just now, I do it all in the realm of dinosaurs. I try to do every different thing as possible with dinosaurs. And you've been doing a lot. I was looking at your websites and not to mention that the things that I have around here, I have this, uh, this T-Rex skull what? that I've been hanging on to for a while. I got this as a gift from some of my students uh, back when I was a science teacher and it had the globe and everything inside and it's Dino Don's Dino Globe. <laughs> and I, I carry this with me everywhere I well, in this room at least. <laughs> I've had this. This is one of the, the, the greatest things. I take this out to uh, outreach events I because it's just a great way to show kids just the size and the, the, the immense monster that Tyrannosaurus Rex was. And I wouldn't have had this if you didn't do what you do. <laughs> well, and not to mention all the different books and the stickers and the way that you still engage people today when you know they're so intent to just look at their phones or, or not pick their heads up. But when Dino Don's on the screen or you're you're looking at something like this, you get that sense of wonder again. Uh, well, that's great if you say so. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, that's what I miss about all the movies that I didn't work on after the original Jurassic Park. I felt like what made that movie special was the kids and the sense of how majestic these animals were. Right. And we got into stories, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't the same. So going to Jurassic Park, you were a scientific advisor for what is the most influential dinosaur movie of the 20th century. Uh, it's inspired so many people to take up the cause and get out there into the dirt or into museums or to, to do what I'm doing now. You know, I, I saw Jurassic Park 12 times in the theater and I, it still holds a record. It's, I can put it on anytime if I'm flipping through the channels and I see just a glimmer, a single screen of it, my night, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, with you, I hear the music and I have nightmares because I've heard it so often. But there's certain moments in that movie when you first see the Brachiosaur, when you look down at that watering hole, that to me is like still the best animation of dinosaurs I think there is. And to think that it's so early in that day and that this, you know, if you took a stopwatch, dinosaurs are on the screen 13 minutes in that movie. It was lucky for me that I got there 
when I was at the Globe in Boston, I interviewed Crichton. So I started a charity and I asked him for advice and he was a really generous guy. And he said, you basically don't know what you're doing. I said, yeah. He said, let me help you figure this out. And he gave some money to the charity. He started a kid's paper and everything. And then he told Spielberg, you should do something to help this guy's cause. So Horner was very much the principal dinosaur advisor. Mm -hmm. And then Bakker declared himself an advisor, which drove Spielberg crazy. And so that's why in the second movie, a lookalike to Bakker is eaten. The Robert Burt character. Yeah, that was the revenge <laughs> for his overbilling himself. I do remember hearing a story of, uh, that Jack Horner and Bob Bakker would both tell uh, that they, they worked that character in just to be eaten by the Tyrannosaurus. And then Jack Horner called him and said, how do you like that? And he says, oh, I love that he's an active hunter and look at him chasing me down while I'm alive. I'm <laughs> he didn't scavenge me. <laughs> so it was a nice little uh, you know, friendly battle between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, so when, when you're involved in Jurassic Park, what I know there were a lot of different stories of things that they wanted to do for the sake of storytelling that didn't match up with the science. You hear a lot of people talking about how the Velociraptor is five times larger than it should have been and it didn't have feathers. Uh, but what are some of the other things that scientifically you and Dr. Horner had to say, no, 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 we're not doing that. <laughs> we did say a number of things, none of which were adhered to. And to be fair, if you did an accurate dinosaur movie, a really accurate dinosaur movie, it would consist of a lot of sleeping and farting. And every nine times out of 10, a hunter would miss its prey. That's a really boring movie. Mm. So, so you know, even from the beginning, they've spent two years prepping this. They've got all the storyboards. You can't go in there and say, as I did, let's do all animals from the same time period. Let's have the behavior work out the way, the way that they really did. Let's make them move the way they did, because it's already done by the time they call on the advisors. Um, Bakker was actually a little involved in the early process because some of the sculptors turned to him for advice. I, when I first got there, they were doing a scene in the desert. It's actually uh, the Mojave Desert, you probably know. You can't really dig in the Mojave Desert. It's protected. So they had to build, build a mound, then a fake hole, then the fake dinosaur in the fake hole, then the fake paleontologist, all wearing <laughs> digging in the fake hole. It was very surreal for me watching this. And I'm standing in the back, you know, with the director, and they had Laura Dern say, you know, looking at the coiled up uh, Tenatosaurus. Oh, this, you know, this post-mortem contraction or whatever. This took, uh, probably took thousands of years to happen. I said, wait a minute, that you can change. You know, it got rigor mortis like a couple of hours after it died. Mm. And Spielberg up in the front said, okay, get up here and rewrite the line. So, uh, and then I said, these shirts are wrong too. I figured I'm on a roll. <laughs> I said, where are you going to get dirty t-shirts? And I said, I have a suitcase full of dirty t-shirts. So we traded them for the dirty t-shirts. So the only two actual contributions. Well, there's a third. I got some real amber from Dominican Republic. Um, on the other hand, I didn't want to take any money from them. So they got their money's worth. Uh, my, deal, my deal was when they were finished, I got everything that was in the movie. And I would make an exhibit about what was wrong with the movie. So at least... <laughs> There's a lot you could attack, and that's what we used in the exhibit. And the idea was we would give all the money to paleontology, 
all the money being what the museums didn't take, we, we told Universal, you can have a 20% royalty, which is like double what they get on their toys. But you have to give every penny of it away to charity and you'll get the tax break. Until Spielberg called them up and said, you got to do this. And him, they were to it. So we raised three million bucks, which was probably the biggest money raise ever for paleontology um, from that exhibit. And we did the same thing for the lost world. The impact that you had, though, were so important because a lot of things that Jurassic Park is credited for is not just having the engaging story and the beautiful CGI that's changed the way that we make our movies, but the areas where the science makes where the science does check out was so riveting for us. So to make sure that the paleontologists are dressed like they're actually in a dig in the middle of the summer in, in Montana, and to make sure that those little things are, are held to, I think is so important. I, I like the, um, you know, I have the book by George Poinar about the Amber Forest. Right. That was one of the things that inspired Michael Crichton to, to put pen to paper. Right. And I know that the idea of the T-Rex not seeing you if you can't, if you're not moving, I know that's in the book, so they had to stick with certain things like that. The people behind Jurassic Park knew they weren't dinosaurs, because everything was a hybrid. And right. the whole reason that they brought Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler there in the first place was to see... Are these convincing enough to tell some paleontologists, hey, that's a dinosaur that they have here? Right. So they, that's why they, they blended everything together, because they just wanted to make a convincing enough uh, creature. So it's really the same story as Westworld. Um, right. You know, a very good imitation <laughs> things go wrong. Uh, to me, the things about chaos theory were actually more interesting than the dinosaurs, because I love this idea that if you try to bring it back, you screw everything up. And that's in there. Uh, actually, Crichton said this, and he was right. The first day you're there is incredibly exciting to see everything. After that, it's one of the most boring things in the world. It sounds very spoiled to say, but when you think about that, they're shooting exactly the same thing 30 times until everybody gets their lines right and, the, and everything else is right. The guy who was really great was Goldblum. He is exactly what you would think he was. Looney, very nice. He did. He filmed all these videos for us to use in this exhibition, where he plays himself and in, as an InGen scientist. And he rewrote the lines for himself, made it sound exactly like him. He showed up with sixteen identical black T-shirts and a wardrobe person. I'm still trying to figure that one out. He volunteered all his time, and he was he was just a great guy. He showed up I, the, I love that you always knew where you stood with Jeff Goldblum. Like he, he seems like the kind of guy that it's it's all out there. There's no there's no secrets with him. And uh, I've, I've seen a lot of the stuff that he's been doing lately. He's still very heavily involved in the Jurassic uh, franchise because he he blended his his voice and his character to the uh, Jurassic World Evolution game that came out a couple of years ago. Right. And uh, now all these characters are coming back again in the next movie that's supposed to wrap everything else up again. He's very open. He wears it all on his sleeve. Very open. And I actually found Spielberg very open. But mm -hmm. because I didn't want anything myself from him, he actually was very conversational and interesting character. You knew you were there for the right reasons. You weren't, he's probably so used to people asking him for things or, or yes. uh, buttering him up so that they can make the ask later on. But you're, no, I just want to make a good dinosaur movie. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> 
that ride has been one of my favorite things to do in this town for a very long time. And then I could go sit in Jurassic Park and sip a lemonade on the, front, on the steps of the visitor center anytime I wanted to. So that wasn't a bad gig at all. <laughs> well, I worked on that ride and I, I hate rides, so I didn't want to go on. And at the end of the preparation, before it was open to the public, some big guy who worked there threw me in the boat. Did he really? <laughs> yeah, right in the front where he gets splashed the most. So That's awesome. I was terrified. Well, they used to have an intro film that I did. So when you stuck online forever, you had to look at me. And they wised up and got rid of it. They also had incredible robots. I don't know if you ever saw them. They were two triceratops. I love those triceratops so much. Those things were so great. And they could do a million more things that they didn't want to use in the routine. Uh, they could pee, they could climb steps. Mm -hmm. and so every time I would go to the park, after they discontinued them, I was trying to figure out where they went. And nobody wants to break character, so it's always, oh, they're in a farm reading. Yeah. I know they're not in a farm. Could you tell me what warehouse they're in? But never found out. So they actually, uh, they never moved them. You know, I, when I worked, I used to work at the Orlando Science Center around the same time that I was doing the Universal thing. And there was a, a time when we were looking at adding to our dinosaur exhibit. And one of the things I reached out to is, well, they had these two giant triceratops at Universal, and we could get one of those and put them in the display area. And I was able to get a lot of the documentation from the company that they contracted with on how they built the thing. And the triceratops that you saw was only half of the robot. The other half was like the same size under the ground. So those things never moved. They, they held up. You know, they were designed to withstand to the elements and things. And uh, I even got to see a few of the shows where they actually did the, you know, they, they had them collect urine samples and different things. But my God, that Triceratops encounter was beautiful. Well, where are they sitting now? Now, they've changed the area that there was a line for that. It's now the Raptor encounter. So you go up and they come out and they take photos with you like you're meeting one of the princesses at Disney. Um, but it's, it's kind of a cool thing to see all that. The guts, the nuts and the bolts are still there for sure. Uh, well, the, co the company in Toronto that made a lot of it, Spark, I think, they, mm -hmm. did, they did the Lunar Lander. And a, a friend of mine, a guy named Hall Train, mm -hmm. was involved in designing it. I know that Hall Train's uh, baby Triceratops puppet is still used on a daily basis. Because uh, that's something that they have in the visitor center. And it's a, a huge part of the experience to go and see the baby dinosaurs. He, we worked together. He, he did a lot of the work on the Argentinosaurus skeleton uh, when we did the first one in the Fernbank Museum in Atlanta. It was a really funny story because I went to that museum years ago. It's got this huge atrium and it was empty. And I said, you really need a dinosaur in here. And they said, what do you got in mind? And I asked an artist in Philadelphia, Robert Walters, very good uh, dinosaur illustrator, to draw up a drawing and I sent it off to them. I never heard anything. Then I got a call from the Atlanta Constitution newspaper saying, so uh, when is the installation? So I didn't know what to say. I was trying to lead them on so I could figure out what they're talking about. So, right. Uh, you know, it's going to be soon. Uh, what did you hear? <laughs> so one in, for Atlanta, he had this beautiful curving tail, but it couldn't be made unless you used aluminum. And to weld aluminum is really complicated. So fortunately, Atlanta Museum found a guy with an aluminum welding shop. Otherwise, that thing would never have been built. Wow. But it's beautiful. It's got all kinds of twists in the tail. 
So the Fernbank Museum, Argentinosaurus, is the one that you and Hall train built together. I've got a great picture, we got great sound, and I have a wonderful guest. I'm very glad to have you with me, <laughs> And we'll, we'll go silent in one second, and then... You got it. That's, that's how these things work. That's how this goes. And you know, we were talking a little bit about your experience with the Fernbank Museum and the Argentinosaurus. But that's just really scraping the surface of all the amazing things you've had in your adventures with dinosaurs over the years. You mentioned that you built exhibits out of the experience from Jurassic Park. Uh, you said, when everything's done, I want everything. What do you mean, I want everything when, when it's all done? What, what did you build your exhibit with? So it's actually the fair credit goes to Peter May, who's you know probably the top dinosaur caster, mounter of bones in the world. And he worked on the movie so that they took that entire T-Rex, I think it was $125,000, and blew it up in one minute with a bunch of ropes and then superimposed the T-Rex itself in that final scene. So it was his idea to make an exhibition about all this. But since I was working more closely with everybody, he said, you front this idea for me. Marvin Levy, who is a guy who looks like E.T., who's been Spielberg's PR guy, he just got an Oscar. He's been around for like 80 years. I said to him, how do we broach this? He said, well, I'll just ask Stephen uh, if you can have a Triceratops. And so he did. And Spielberg said, sure. And then Marvin Levy called Universal and said, Stephen said, give everything to these guys. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they lent us everything, like the stained glass backgrounds, all the dinosaurs. I had the molds for quite a long time. The moment I have a, a dismembered Brachiosaur sitting next to my garage, 65 really? long, if you put them back together, yeah. I have an extra. Well, and I, I made some replicas for our exhibit because we yeah. wanted our sturdy material, you know, that didn't have all the wires and hydraulic fluid that Stan Winston had in them. And then we made one set for a Microsoft billionaire who wanted them for his garden, $100,000 for every dinosaur from the movie. And, but anyway, so we had access to all these materials to use them to tell the story of what's right and what's wrong. Ever since then, I really turned things towards doing exhibitry. And in order to do it, digging up dinosaurs and, and financing the paleontologists in the museums. So they kept the original bones and I would put the casts in museums. So that was That's amazing. Phenomenal. So I'm trying now with robots, finally. I always found them stupid, out of touch scientifically. But kids love them anyway. And then I went to a factory in China, one of the many where they're made, and realized that they're sculpted by hand without a mold. So if you send a scientist, it could come out looking like a real dinosaur. I used to work as, I was the paleontologist record for the Orlando Science Center for about six years. Yeah. And so whenever exhibits were uh, traveling around, they were they would uh, you know, exhibit certain things and say, here, here's our, uh, our pre-roll and see something you can get from it. I have this. Oh yeah, from, <laughs> with the little piece of skin still attached, and I always thought it was the coolest thing to have all of the, you know, the dinosaur examples and and the the, uh, the statues that you could put into the exhibit with the Dilophosaurus and everything. And I always was like, man, this is a really cool uh, piece of of Jurassic history to have. And I'm just flipping through it at the end right here. There's Dino Don. <laughs> so this was this was your exhibit. That's right. I can't believe you have that. There are only like three of them around anymore. I'll be buried with it. They will take it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, put the spoon in water. You can throw a dinosaur. You know what? I'm going to take your word for it. I'm going to go right ahead. <laughs> but then, but I, I don't have enough room for it. Orlando housing, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the space around my house, I, I don't have room for that. I can get a consignatus out of it. That'll be enough. That, that's, that's what I can fit. <laughs> I'm actually interested to find out what you think are the best toys out there because I want to start boxing a line of toys that we put in the zoos where we have all our dinosaurs that is as accurate as possible. And we probably aren't going to be able at the first to, to afford to make a new mold. So I'd like to work with whoever makes the best ones. But I'm interested in what you think. So that's actually, you know, that was something that I was thinking of too, because, you know, I'm starting off with the idea of the show and things here. And my ultimate goal is that I, I want to, I want to do what you're doing. <laughs> I wanted to have a way to, to take the science of dinosaurs that we've been seeing over the last 30 years and catch back up everybody who got out of the sandbox when they were younger. And so there are some really exciting looking toys that, and, and models and things that they've been able to create that are based on the new science. You know, companies like Safari have poured their heart and souls into making things that are, are up to date. Like they'll release three triceratops in the space of a year because studies are coming up to say, oh, you know what? Maybe they did have uh, feathers and little bristles coming out of their tail scoots here. It's like, okay, we need a feather triceratops. Let's get it out there. <laughs> and so I think for, for companies that want to do something that's really great, I've been wanting to do the same thing. Celebrate some species that aren't as well known and get some of the most up-to-date information out there in a way that's just engaging and awesome. When Jurassic Park was coming out, the, the, the uh, merchandise department sent me out to Kenner, which was the merchandise partner. And the, uh, I was looking at all the product before it came out. And I said, this looks like everything else that I've seen out there. And they said, yeah, well, we took our existing toys, but we introduced dino damage into them. So they have like tooth marks on their butts. Product of the year is. So it's really encouraging right. to know Safari is doing something different. There was a great story about Ant-Men. I don't know if you remember a TV show that was very short-lived, a cartoon show in the morning, when cartoon, uh, when manufacturers used to be able to pretty much buy a half-hour commercial out of something. Right. <laughs> they, uh, whatever company it was had Ant-Men, created this TV show at, around their product, which is these little ant guys on top of dinosaurs who would shoot everybody. Nobody watched the show, and nobody bought the toys. So they stripped the Ant-Men off, they went to Smithsonian, and said, if we give you 6% royalties... And we call this the Smithsonian set of dinosaurs, which is what they did. So. That's the, the Dino Riders. Exactly. Dino Riders. Dino Riders. I, I watched the show. I had every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, had every, I had every single one. Actually, I, uh, I was sharing this not too long ago. I went back because my, uh, my parents live on the coast. And so when this last big storm was coming through, you know, I went to go help and put up the shutters and things like that. And... Uh, we're going around the outside of the house and I noticed there's something down by my foot. I look and there's a snake skin down there. I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. There's a snake skin. That's, that's the neat thing. I noticed something next to it. I'm like, wait a minute. What is, what is that? And I found my old Styracosaurus from Dino Riders from, from 1987. It's a, it's a 30 year old dinosaur toy that was buried 
And it's like, now that is some real plastic paleontology right there. <laughs> Literally dug the sea out of the ground. Looking back now, a lot of the science doesn't hold up anymore. A lot of the, the sculpts and a lot of the ideas that we had for them, the dragging tails and things like that and everything being all pebbly. Yeah, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work for things. But we didn't have anything else. And they were the best of what was showing. You know, it was... Uh, not a great hand of poker, but it beat everything else on the table. <laughs> I actually wonder, because parents and grandparents are the ones often buying this stuff, if they right. don't still prefer the inaccurate dinosaur, because to them, it's like, what are these doing with feathers? That's not the cute dinosaur that I remember. I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's uh, a possibility. I was giving a talk. We, we have these little science cafe things that we do. We call them Nerd Night. Uh, we do them all over the country. But I was doing one here. And I had a, a checklist of what makes a dinosaur. Like, what are the scientific things that an animal has to do? And I said, you can apply any animal to this, and we'll find out if it's a dinosaur or not. Throw out an animal. Any animal. Dog. Dog. Perfect. And someone said dog. It's like, well, it survived the Permian. Uh, yes, it did. But it doesn't have feathers or scales. So a dog is not a dinosaur. And the next person said goose. Next. What else? A goose. A goose. So we went down the line, and he's like, no, it has this, it has this. A goose is a dinosaur. And the crowd went wild. <laughs> so all these people were like, <laughs> It made sense to them with the instructions to say, oh, my God, birds are, in fact, dinosaurs. My entire world has changed. <laughs> but if you ask a five-year-old, they all pretty much know that now. Right. They didn't learn the wrong way. The thing is, you know this, and everybody does, that it changes fast, and in a book, maybe 10 years old, even maybe one of mine, things are wrong now. And so you'll meet a kid, and he'll, he'll say something that's incorrect, and I'll say, no, it's, it's an interesting idea, and he'll say, but I read it in this book, or I read it in your book, <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, but it's not true. I love, uh, I love telling people that paleontology is a very living science of very dead things. And uh, in paleo, everything is right until it's wrong. And <laughs> as long as you keep that mindset, knowing that what we know now is right this week, it makes a lot of those conversations a lot more palatable. It is frustrating, though, when you occasionally write encyclopedias and, you know, two weeks later, and it's too late for the deadline, there's this awesome new dinosaur that you wish you could get illustrated. Yeah. I understand. Absolutely. And you got to sell them on doing a supplement. And that you, you got to line up for a sequel. Everyone loves sequels and reboots. <laughs> so your experiences have been in part of the, the thriving resurgence of paleontology. And you, you've had a major hand in making dinosaurs cool again. And to really bring this, this, the science back to the forefront. Where do you see things going from here? Hmm, that's a good question. It's come a long way, as you say. I think the coolest thing about Jurassic Park in terms of influence is that it didn't make dinosaurs just a thing for kids. Mm -hmm. A thing for teenagers. And as much as little kids say they're going to be paleontologists, they don't become paleontologists. It's, it's the good thing is if they are turned towards science, and maybe it you know, ends up with more scientists. But the teenagers, some of them really did become paleontologists. And so they're, they're actually, you know, probably double the number, still not a lot, but double the number of people doing dinosaurs, girls and guys, mm -hmm. before. Uh, there's not enough money, but there's more money. 
It's much more sophisticated as a science. So therefore, the pace of finding dinosaurs increases. Because it's still pretty basic, primitive. Go find something and dig it up, you know? Yeah. But the sort of the information that uh, informs the scientists is so much greater. That the understandings are really cool. And for people, what I love about it is that Every dinosaur new discovery ends up in the news. You know, there's a million other animals that are found, but people have such a fondness, I think, from their childhood memories for dinosaurs. This is the only time they hear about the whole science of dead stuff. And, and so, you know, it's irreplaceable value. The information for kids is much better as a result, and I'm not the only one doing it, but the whole, this generation of Scientists and writers, and I guess movie makers, it's a big quantum leap forward. And I think that's kind of the, the direction where we're going to start seeing some amazing discoveries going forward. But every single thing that happens from this point on is going to have uh, some impact from the work that you've done over your career, sir. And I, I really appreciate you for everything that you've done. So I did this thing with like. The first big show I did is in the Bronx, the Bronx Zoo this year. 45 of these dinosaurs, and they're about twice as big as the robots that were before, and they're grouped by the behavior that they did that parallels what you'd see in the zoo. And I'm going to do one next year, I hope, in Philadelphia, where you go through not just dinosaurs, but pretty much all large land life from the Permian up till today and put extinction, oh, wow. events, put extinction events in the middle of the trail. So, like, an asteroid hits you when you're there, and a volcano goes over your head. So, you know, there's a lot more that can be done, even with something as stale as a robot. And I think next year we'll be in about 10 zoos, the year after about 30. So, pretty much, if you go to a zoo, which is a lot of kids, they'll see better dinosaurs than they saw before. So, I'm psyched. You can do 3D without glasses, very effectively. You can do screens of any shape in any location. And if you have really good software, mm -hmm. you produce a dark, you know, an in-the-box dark environment where the dinosaurs are everywhere. They're all around you. You think you're with them. They're breathing on you. You know, they, they are absolutely three-dimensional. So one day, I think that's like beyond movies, you know, beyond any other way to make dinosaurs seem real. And that's, I'm waiting for that. I hope I live for that. So augmented reality projections in a real-world space where you can move around and interact with things. Yeah, because augmented reality still depends on all kinds of equipment. Less and less right. it's long. And the number of viewers is limited. This is unlimited viewership and creating a story around it. And you're in the world of dinosaurs, and they're, they're absolutely there. I mean, that's, that's as much as you could ask for, right? That's that sounds beautiful, Don. I can't wait to see it. I know that's going to be something amazing. Once we get there, we get, we'll get there. We're going to make that happen. Right. <laughs> that is the future. Well, you just need a, a ten million dollar go funded campaign. Yeah, a, a small loan, ten million dollars, make my dinosaurs pop all over the place. We get right on it. <laughs> Don't hold my breath. No. Well. Dino Don Lessam, I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us here tonight. This has been by far the greatest conversation, and I could talk to you for another four and a half hours, but, uh, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me, and, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. See ya. Thank you. I, uh, I, I, can't, 
I can't stop fanboying enough. I got to say, you, <laughs> meeting you in in person, even like this right now, it's uh, it's it's one of the coolest things that I've ever had the opportunity to do. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh um, my, my pleasure, really. I don't know why it's important to you, but what the hell? I'm glad. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, because I am one of those kids that never grew out of the dinosaur phase. You know, uh, all throughout when I was. And through grade school and high school, you know, no matter what, I would try to diversify my interests, but dinosaurs always kind of creep back in. And, you know, seeing, trying to make this into something of a career or do something, you know, grander with my life for it. Like when, when I got a chance to run the dinosaur exhibit at, at Orlando Science Center, right. like that, that, I, I had peaked. That was it. 2006, I, I was done. <laughs> Everything else was downhill. And I got, a ch- got an opportunity to to tell the story and to go and take it out to television and radio and to meet people and, and to really inspire kids to do that. But at some point I had to stop because the rest of the real world kept knocking in on me. Right. And, um, you know, and that exhibit was a phenomenon that the dino digs at the Orlando science center, all those bones were the ones that were used at animal kingdom during the dinosaur Jubilee when they were prepping soup. Where'd you go? And and oh, yeah. so uh, yeah, and so when when the prep was finished and the dinosaur ride was getting ready to open up, they didn't need the dinosaur bones anymore. So it's like, all right, let's find a museum in town and we'll ship them all over. And so they they came over to us there. But the thing is that the Imagineers and the exhibit techs were the ones putting everything together, and they knew insert uh, slot A into tab B and things like that. But they didn't know from dinosaurs, and so. I was in there doing a, one of my walking tours one day, and I noticed that the sacrum, the hip structure on the Pachycephalosaurus was backwards. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking around and say, kids, we're going to do something different today. Let me show you how we build a dinosaur. And I took the whole thing apart, <laughs> cool. laid out each part and piece on the table, had an Allen wrench and broke it up, swapped the hips around and reassembled it. And my manager is sitting in the corner and is like, you're lucky you knew what you were doing. <laughs> I could have gotten you fired. No, but it's okay. It all it all uh, it all worked out. And then instead, they said, "All right, here's the keys. Take care of the whole thing." <laughs> but um, but you're doing all of that and so much more. And that's that's kind of the the direction that you know I'm I'm I want to follow in your footsteps. You know, I want to I want to do this for generations going forward and i see that you work with like darren nash and, and your whole team that you have there and so you're surrounding yourself with the right people so this is something that's uh it's it's really cool to see what you can do and and getting a chance to talk to you is like hey the, the, the dream is still alive you know, it's, it's achievable so I'm sure it is if you stick with it i mean that's the big that's what really separates people it isn't i mean there are a lot of talented people yourself yeah. and you, but there's a lot who will give up Uh, and you know how many people are you reaching with this a lot so you're already making a difference thanks very much for watching if you enjoyed it I'd appreciate a like and if you want to see more please consider subscribing and check out Dinosaur Podcast on Instagram and remember no matter what you do where you're from or how old you are dinosaurs will always be awesome